Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. For much of the past three months, the northeastern Indian state of Manipur, nestled right up against the border with Myanmar, has been the site of conflict between two ethnic groups. The fighting, with scenes of brutal violence, looting of police stations, and burnt places of worship, even sparked a motion of no confidence against Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The region of northeast India has long posed a challenge for its leaders, both local and national. Geographically isolated from the rest of India due to partition and the awkward place where it eventually becomes Bangladesh, the region soon features countless ethnic groups demanding authority and autonomy in the newly independent India, at times through violent resistance, and a heavy-handed national administration quite willing to impose martial law to get things under control. Journalist Samrat Chowdhury writes about this region in his latest book, Northeast India, A Political History, published by Hearst. Samrat talks about the region's eight states, Arunachal Pradesh, Assam, Manipur, Meghalaya, Mizoram, Nagalandripura, and Sikkim, and their experience under first the British and then newly independent India. Samrat is a journalist and former newspaper editor who has written for major papers and magazines in Britain, the U.S., Asia, and Europe. He's edited anthologies, contributed to academic publications, and authored books including novel The Urban Jungle and travelogue The Braided River, A Journey Along the Brahmaputra. Today, Samrat and I talk about this region's sometimes messy history, its experience with insurgencies and the tough government reaction, and touch briefly on what's happening in Manipur today. So, Samrat, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today and talking about Northeast India. Um, and I want to start by just kind of giving listeners some context about um, about where this place is, what its kind of geography is like compared to the wider geography of India, and kind of how it's connected to the broader country, kind of economically, politically, what have you. But just what is this part of India like? Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Nicholas. And uh, well, it is a very diverse uh, region. It is a region of seven or eight states, and we always say seven or eight because the eighth is geographically separated from the other seven. It has no no uh, direct connection with the other seven. So it is a region of eight states, uh, on each different from the other, and each internally diverse in itself. There are roughly somewhere around 220 languages spoken there. Uh, all the major world religions are there, so you've got Hindus, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, you've got animists, you've got Sikhs, all, all the faiths are there. Uh, you've got different types of uh, people in, in terms of appearance as well. So the uh, hill tribes of the region are East Asian in appearance. They look more like Thais or Filipinos rather than the stereotypical South Asian Indian look. So it is really a very diverse region. And uh, it is geographically connected to the rest of India by a land corridor, which at its narrowest is roughly 21 kilometers wide. Uh, so it is it inhabits the sense of space uh, of itself as something like an island, which uh, 
is connected to the rest of India only by that narrow strip. And uh, the way that people often talk conversationally when they're talking about the rest of India is they talk about the mainland of India. So that sense of island is, is present even in the language. Uh, it is uh, always been since 1947 when India became independent a little bit of a troubled periphery. That has been the general view from different administrations in Delhi. And to some extent, I suppose that that still continues. In other words, that parts of it remain troubled even now and that it is still a bit peripheral to the mainstream imagination of India. Well, let's start talking about some of these some of these troubles. I mean, having reading through your book um, and you go through each of these states in turn, um, the region's history seems very messy. Um, and I guess how much of that, how much of these troubles are due to or were due to the British administration when back when India was a colony and then kind of the chaos around independence? Um, how did that kind of, I guess, lay the foundations for for a lot of the um, troubles you talk about in your book? I think the uh, while partition rather than the independence of India itself did have a very significant impact uh, because it created new boundaries and new borders where previously there were no international borders. And uh, so in, in a sense, it carved that region out into the periphery that it became because otherwise many of these places were uh, geographically, they are uh, they remain closely linked to neighboring countries, which then, for example, Bangladesh, uh, was he, before it became East Pakistan in 1947 was actually uh, the nearest place just across from many places which are now Northeast India. So the new uh, borders which came up in 1947 did have a major impact in making these places difficult to reach and remote. Uh, but at the same time, I wouldn't blame the British uh, for many of the troubles that we've inherited uh, because actually the way I see it, the British Indian Empire was uh, something which, like many other empires, brought together very diverse people without any idea of nation or nation state. And some of the troubles that we see later are actually because of these new ideas coming in and people asserting their their identities as nations and aspiring towards nation states. So the insurgencies, the various insurgencies in Northeast India are actually the battles of aspiring nations or nationalities to become nation states. And uh, that is the progress of an idea to a part of the world where it didn't exist before. And for that, I don't know to what extent the British Indian Empire can be blamed. Well, let's, I mean, let's let's talk about this idea and these identities that are, I guess, these national identities that are formed. I mean, um, and perhaps it's best to start with Assam, which is kind of the, the, the first state that's created. And then bits keep on getting whittled away as these insurgencies um, and these movements kind of come to the fore. Um, but how did the state of Assam first come to be and then... And then, I guess, what start like what were these initial tensions between the people of Assam and then all these other different groups? Right. So, well, Assam is central to the region, and uh, the the Brahmaputra River is the central geographical feature, and so the Brahmaputra Valley, which forms the forms the heart of Assam, 
is really at the heart of the region. Uh, that area was where the most powerful kingdom in that region existed for a very long time, which was the Ahom Kingdom. And this Ahom Kingdom, uh, after it was defeated by the Burmese uh, who came in, uh, it subse the subsequent troubles between the Burmese and the British brought the East India Company and the British Empire into that part of the world. It was the British administration which uh, created the state of Assam, the modern state of Assam, by hiving it out from Bengal. First, by appending it, appending their new, uh, newly acquired territories to Bengal, and then later separating it out and adding some more territories to create the new state of Assam. And uh, that uh, changed shape subsequently because in those days, Drawing and redrawing of maps was something that happened based largely on administrative convenience or uh, ideas of revenue. And and so it had very little to do with what kind of people inhabited a particular area and what they wanted. So a lot of rather diverse territories got added in. And uh, as the British Indian Empire expanded further into that part of the world, and subsequently, even in, in later years, ideas of linguistic nationalism or linguistic identity began to grow. Uh, starting with Assam itself, where first there was an assertion of the Assamese linguistic identity, which led to a clash with the Bengali linguistic identity. Uh, there was a process by which several other identities also began to assert themselves within the diverse state of Assam. So then, for example, there was a hill states movement and states such as Meghalaya uh, came to be formed because of that hill states movement, uh, which essentially emphasized their difference from Assam. And that process led to the redrawing of the map of Assam and largely of Northeast India. Right. And you, you mean, you say, we have all these insurgencies um, in Nagaland, um, in, in, uh, in Mizoram, and kind of all, all over the place. Um, and that leads to a very harsh reaction on the part of the Indian government. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more how, I guess, how these insurgencies came to be and then what the official Indian response was. Well, in the case of Nagaland, the uh, insurgency actually started pretty much on the day of India's independence because uh, a group from there declared independence on that very day. So... It has been going on for a long time and it's basically based on the idea that uh, these areas were never part of, uh, historically part of any Indian empire and that they were brought into British the British Indian empire by the British and that therefore when the British were leaving, they should go back to the way they were before the British arrived. Uh, so with that sort of general idea and with a new sense of nationalism, uh, which created broader identities out of uh, smaller tribal identities. Uh, we started to see first the Nagas and then several others uh, begin to fight for independence from India. And uh, that uh, invited rather harsh reactions from the Indian government because uh, the Indian armed forces were sent in, a special law was passed by parliament uh, the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which is essentially very much like martial law. And uh, that uh, it empowers uh, soldiers to 
shoot to kill and uh, without uh, any sort of uh, restraint and uh, they have, this law has been enforced in many parts of northeast india from then it continues to be enforced even now uh, so basically the uh, initial response was military subsequently there was a political response as well mm-hmm. and uh, new states were created and new you know states with state assemblies and elected governments so uh that has been the general uh sort of history of integration of these areas was was there a lot of resistance to the idea of creating these new states for these for these communities um i mean i'm sure assam wasn't very happy about it but but but, but kind of what 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 was some of was there any resistance i guess politically to the creation of these new states well uh there was indeed some resistance from Assam, but uh, in the case of the Nagas, what they were fighting for was an independent country, and uh, some uh, some of the tribes and some Nagas continue to fight even today uh, for independence. So the demand was for a country, and uh, so the state within the Indian Union was essentially a negotiated settlement to to that uh, demand. Similarly, in the case of Mizoram, the demand was for an independent country. And then after a lot of uh, bloodshed, uh, eventually the settlement was uh, for a state. And uh, the former militants came over ground and became part of the government. And in fact, even the chief minister, the person who's chief minister right now is a former militant who was part of that movement back then. So. Uh, it has been a political settlement which has been successful to some extent, uh, to to varying extents in very in the various states uh, in settling these uh, demands for independence from India. So there are in this region there there are two states that are, um, well in short that that are different that have different backgrounds. I'm talking about the the two princely states of Manipur and and Tripura. Um, which were, I guess, quasi at least, quasi sovereign entities kind of before they joined India. There's a lot of pressure for them to join India after independence. Um, do these two states kind of have a different history in the region because they used to be princely states and not and not kind of unrecognized tribal areas or whatever term you want to use? Mm, yeah, well, I mean, several of the other areas were non-state spaces and they were part of the Southeast Asian massive or what is called Zomia. Uh, I think the name was given by uh, Willem van Schendel and later by James Scott. And uh, but the princely states were uh, they they were different from those areas, and uh, they had state structures. And uh, their entry into India, the way they came into India, was like the other princely states in in India. So there were some 562 odd princely states in undivided India. And uh, basically, the way they all came in was that uh, they they had all been brought into some kind of uh, indirect British rule, and uh, that largely continued. So, what the Indian government, when it came in, did was that uh, the rulers of these princely states were more or less persuaded or uh, strong-armed into into signing. Uh, instruments of accession by which they signed away powers over defense, communication, and foreign affairs. And uh, 
So that was the first step. And then subsequently at different points, uh, they signed a, a, another agreement, the merger agreement, by which they merged into the Indian Union. And so that was the legal process by which they entered India and accepted the Indian constitution. Um, changing tax slightly, um, you mentioned earlier about how um, how partition and the creation of East Pakistan um, and eventually Bangladesh makes this region much more remote than it would have been otherwise. Um, and then, but how how does how does Bangladesh first when it's East Pakistan and then after the war, after India intervenes and after Bangladesh becomes independent, how does this, I guess, independent country um, influence the political environment of Northeast India? Okay. So first, the creation of Bangladesh itself had a very strong impact on the insurgencies in Northeast India because many of the insurgents had bases in what was East Pakistan. India and Pakistan famously don't get along and so uh, the insurgents had a lot of support when what is now Bangladesh was East Pakistan and that uh, they lost initially at least for the first few years when Bangladesh became a country. Secondly, the creation of Bangladesh uh, was also a time when India emerged victorious in war and uh, over uh, overriding the objections or the, or the attempts of uh, other powers, including the United States under Nixon and Kissinger to uh, prevent an outright victory. And uh, so what happened was that in the in the flush of that victory, uh, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was able to redraw the map not only of, of that of, of the entire region, basically, of Northeast India internally and of, of course Bangladesh, which became a country. And uh, so basically, that redrawing of the map internally within Northeast India uh, led to the creation of new states. And so the present map of Northeast India is something that emerged only after the creation of Bangladesh. Uh, since then, also Bangladesh has been uh, important in the internal politics of Northeast India because, for example, just a year or two back, we had this whole thing about the National Register of Citizens which is related to migration. And the migrants are suspected of coming in, illegal migrants are suspected of coming in from Bangladesh. And uh, the truth of that matter, or how many people actually have come, has not been settled. But uh, the suspicion has driven politics internally within Northeast India for decades now. So when I was reading your book, one thing that I found interesting um, was the... Uh, I guess was was the foothold that that Christianity has in this region. Um, I think a lot of a lot of the a lot of these groups that are that were agitating for um, independence, uh, I believe, were mostly Christian. Um, so I have to ask, like, how does Christianity kind of get its kind of how how does it get its presence in this part of the world? Well, uh, uh, first I have to say that it's not only the Christian groups which uh, which. Uh, fought for independence. Uh, for example, in Assam, uh, there was a very strong insurgency uh, fighting for independence from India. The United Liberation Front of Assam was the group that led that, and they were mostly Hindus. Uh, similarly, in Tripura also, there were uh, there was an insurgency, and uh, many of the insurgents were Hindus. 
so it's not uh, necessarily a religious issue i think religion is actually not very important in this scheme of things as far as northeast india is concerned it's usually more to do with ethnicity and ideas of ethno nationalism but uh uh sorry what what was the, what was the question that you actually asked I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off oh i mean but just just like i mean i, I just just how does christianity get exactly. a foothold right exactly. yeah because there are all these right all these missionaries coming and they yeah. seem to get in trouble a lot <laughs> yeah yeah so well christianity came in uh quite early it was the american baptists who were there first in assam and uh so basically the first uh, ba- american baptist missionaries who came in well, to start at the beginning, the East India Company, they it was more interested in profit than in uh, co- conversions and uh, spreading the word of any god. So basically, they did not encourage missionaries to enter at all. In fact, they stopped them. But uh, that policy changed sometime in the early 1800s. And uh, then slowly, uh, before that, there was already a missionary uh, presence in a, in a Danish settlement near Calcutta called Sirampur. So uh, these American Baptist missionaries arrived there and then they uh, gradually spread out through Northeast India. Uh, they, of course, went there to try and convert people, but they took with them a thing that had not been there in that part of the world before, which was a printing press. And so we see the uh, the fixing of vernaculars into into print, uh, standard the st- standardization of language of various languages happens at that point after the missionaries arrive, and they're the ones who sort of standardize several of the languages for print. And uh, so, linguistic identities is something that starts to emerge actually after the arrival of the missionaries in many cases, and that has been very important and continues to be important. Christianity, of course, yes, it uh, it did make progress in the hills and so the Nagas and Mizos are now almost all Christians and very devoutly Christian at that. Uh, in Meghalaya also there's a substantial Christian population. Uh, these are Christian majority states in Northeast India. Um, I guess to kind of as we continue I guess our journey through all the various um, states in this in this part of India, um, there's a state of Arunachal Pradesh which um, obviously is part of the disputed border with China. Um, it was kind of where uh, the conflict was fought over that border between India and China in the 60s that I think still technically has not been uh, resolved yet. Um, it's a border that's still contested. Um, 
but what's the historical basis for for this dispute? Why what what is the reason why India and China um, haven't agreed on this border? Well, uh, it goes back to that thing about non-state spaces. So actually, if you if you uh, go back and look at that area, uh, say even uh, in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, the state of knowledge about that part of the world, they were blanks on maps. Some Several of the areas that uh, India and China have a dispute over in Northeast India were blanks on the map. And the state of knowledge uh, about what lay in those areas or who lived in those areas was uh, not very good, to put it mildly, because uh, you had experts of the time debating about whether uh, the people there were cannibals, and then de- concluding rather confidently that indeed they were cannibals. And further, uh, somehow the story emerged that, for example, the uh, that that in the marriage banquets they used to serve up the mother of the bride as the main course. So that was you know, which is of course all entirely untrue, but uh, that was what you know the the sort of the imagination of the space that existed then. Uh, in other, in in capitals of the world, in faraway places, so people didn't know what really lay in those areas, and uh, India and China basically have uh, expanded out until they've collided with each other. So those areas which were formerly blanks on the map became uh, parts of either India or China as they expanded outwards. And eventually the two collided with each other in the Himalayan heights in 1962. And that collision, I suppose, is still unresolved because they, there are overlapping claims on both sides. Um, I, guess, I guess the last state then to talk about in this region, um, and the one that always to me strikes me as the, as the strangest given by how late it actually joins India, is the kingdom of Sikkim. Um, which doesn't join until the 70s. Uh, and I, I believe, I remember reading about this, the the king has an Amer- had an American wife, yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. So I guess to maybe kind of to to, to wrap up our, our historical tour of the region, um, what was it about Sikkim that, I guess, led it to, to hold out from joining India for so long? And then what finally uh, pushed it to, um, to, I guess, to, to, to join the union? Well, uh, what what caused it to hold out is actually not so easy to say. Uh, the king wanted to hold out, but then which king would have wanted to lose his kingdom? So, so uh, the king of Sikkim, uh, like his neighbor, the king of Bhutan, uh, which is a very similar uh, and similarly located. Uh, territory. It is also located in the Himalayas between India and China. Uh, so they sort of followed somewhat similar trajectories until they did not. So initially, uh, both Sikkim and Bhutan were these two Himalayan kingdoms which uh, did not want to become part of either India or China. Uh, they were already pro- pro- under British in, uh, protection. And uh, so basically, uh, but the Indian Union, uh, which inherited a lot of other princely states, also could not treat these just as as two more princely states. 
like the other 560 whatever because uh, there were also issues of sensitivities uh, involving China. There were international treaties which were already in existence signed between the British and the Chinese. And so uh, these became, uh, I suppose, considerations. And uh, Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru initially uh, did not want to strong arm them, uh, he, you know, did not want to force, force Sikkim into becoming a part of India. Uh, so the process by which it became part of India was more gradual and uh, it happened because of uh, pro-democracy movements. Uh, the majority there, uh, largely Nepali-speaking population, were strongly pro-democracy and they uh, had links with the Indian Congress, Indian National Congress, which was the party which led India's freedom struggle. And so it was ideas of democracy which eventually led much later to a referendum and in that referendum the Sikkimese voted overwhelmingly to join India and that is how Sikkim became a party in India. Um, so now that we've kind of wrapped up our 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 tour of the region and there's um, so much history to talk about um, but I want to bring us to um, to the present day and kind of what this region is like now. I know you said earlier that um that that the that the acts that kind of were imposed on the region um during some of the insurgencies that's still in place you also mentioned kind of some of the 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 tensions around uh, migration from bangladesh into the region um also in your book you talk about how like the the bjp has managed to make inroads into the politics um again of of many of these states and finally i mean as we're as we're recording this um there's been stories about um, a resurgence of violence in the state of Manipur um, between various groups there. Um, I know that's a lot to respond to. You don't have to respond to all of it, but kind of what in the present day, kind of what's the what are the politics of this region um, right now, and how is that changing as you know as as India itself is changing? Right. When uh, there there are different parts to that question. Uh, the case of Manipur itself uh, is. Uh, is basically that it's now in a state of what could accurately be called the low-grade civil war. And uh, that has come about because of what I put down to uh, ideas of nationalism clashing. Uh, so there is the idea of nationalism within Manipur of the Meitei community, which is the locally dominant community, and of the Kuki community in the hills with whom they're present at, at present uh, fighting. Uh, so it is to some extent because of that, but uh, of course there are many other factors as well. Um, the politics of the region has tended generally to follow uh, the pattern of going with whichever party is in power in Delhi. So when the Congress was in power at the center in Delhi, uh, all these states were generally ruled by the Congress. And now that the BJP is in power in Delhi, all these states are either ruled by the BJP or in alliance with the BJP. And that, uh, I think, has more to do with very practical matters of uh, allocation of finances and resources because a lot of resources from the center, uh, these states depend on these uh, resources. 
and uh, it helps if they're on the right side of the government in Delhi. So generally, it tends to be a pattern that whichever party is in power in Delhi comes sooner or later to govern whichever uh, you know the state states uh, of mm-hmm. the northeast. Well, I think that's a good place to end our conversation with Samrat Chaudhary, author of Northeast India, A Political History. Samrat, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all of your work. And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Right. Well, uh, my books are, uh, this book is, uh, it was published by Hearst internationally and first in the UK and therefore uh, it is available uh, in English-speaking countries and also uh, on Kindle, of course. And uh, my previous book was called uh, The Braided River, which was a travelogue following the Brahmaputra and that is available on Kindle for sure and as an audio book internationally. And I think uh, there's an Indian edition which they do send out to wherever uh, people ask for it. Um, in terms of what's next, I absolutely have no clue because uh, right now I've just finished this book. I don't know what I'll do next. And uh, I've also recently gotten married. I have a little baby and my wife is Filipina. So right now I'm thinking about whether and Congratulations. Thank you. So I, I don't know if I'll remain in India or end up in East Asia. So I actually have no clue about where life is going to take me. It's a very honest answer, I think it's, um, which I think a lot of a lot of authors sometimes um, they kind of frantically think of a next project when you ask the question. Um, but you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBucks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Uh, follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural, and you can find many more author interviews at New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Nishanth, Nishanth Injam, author of The Best Possible Experience. But before then, Samrat, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Nicholas.